Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Thanksgiving weekend is winding down. The turkeys and bellies have been stuffed. The Black Friday frenzy has passed. On this most American of holidays, more than 54 million of us travel to and from home. It's a great time to reprise one of our favorite segments about the meaning of home. The average restless American will move 11 times in their lives. Studies show the very idea of home resonates with our deepest emotions. But what makes a home? And do the memories of our experiences influence who we become? On this weekend after Thanksgiving, Americans are marking the official start of the holiday season. It's a special time when many will go home and others will be creating new home spaces. Last year around this time, we explored the theme of home through two books. Later in the show, Healing Through Rhythm. That's Jonathan Monday's mission for his educational program, Drums and Wellness. If anybody learns rhythm or they understand their sense of rhythm, then how they connect with themselves and others in the world is really representing their true authentic self. Jonathan Monday on the extraordinary circumstances that led to his success as a musician and as an advocate for education and personal development. But first, last year, Melanie Warnick joined me from the studios of Virginia Tech. She is the author of This is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are, and is an established freelance journalist whose work has appeared in top magazines, including O, The Oprah Magazine, Fast Company, Better Homes and Gardens, and Quartz. And Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters join me from the studios of the Radio Foundation in New York. They are the editors of a collection of essays entitled This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. Let's start where both of you began. It just happens that both these books arrived in our office within days of each other. And we thought, wow, there's a lot to think about when we start thinking about home. So, Melody, let me start with you. Why is it that thoughts of home bring up so many different kinds of emotions from expectations to anxieties? Well, home is such an integral part of who we are. I mean, our earliest memories all revolve around where we're from. And where we're from really makes us who we are. I grew up in Southern California, and it really wasn't until I moved away to college that I realized the fact of my being from California influenced everything from my fashion choices to my terrible valley girl accent. And, you know, it's the water we swim in, and it creates us as people. Um, How would you answer that, Margot? I think what Melody just said was so perfect. As much as we might try to escape our home if it was an unpleasant place to be, or as much as we might have fond memories of our home, those influences stay with us 
for our entire lives. Kelly, uh, your book is subtitled Women Writing About Home, uh, the book that you and Margot edited. What did you think or did you know that there might be something special or different about how women think about home? Well, I think it started really just talking among friends and then looking at what we were reading and experiencing and talking with one another. There is the idea that you know, where we're from makes us who we are. And that also, when Margot and I were talking about the idea of home, makes us think about how to recreate or create and shape a new home as we're moving out into our own places and building families and what that means. And I think what we realized is home really can also be a four-letter word, for better or for worse. And the way that home makes, breaks, and shapes us is so individual, and yet there's so many common threads, especially with women and our decisions when it comes to the home. So, Melody, back to you. You had a very personal reason for taking up the task of making the statement, finding home wherever you are, because your family moved. So tell us your personal story. Right. So, like I said, I grew up in California and never moved a single time from the cul-de-sac where I lived until I went away to college. And then I got married and My husband and I started ping-ponging across the country to different states, Maryland and Utah and Iowa and Texas, and ultimately ended up in Virginia. And all the moves were for good reasons, jobs and schooling, getting closer to family, getting farther away from family. And I realized after maybe the sixth move that every time I landed in a new place, it really overturned my life for a long time. There was so much expectation in moving. I always had this belief that if I somehow just managed to find the right place, that everything in my life would be better. I would change as a person. All those bad habits would be left behind in the last town. And suddenly in this new place, everything would be great. And I finally had to come to terms with the fact that It never quite worked out like that. It was always complicated and lonely and discombobulating to move to a new place. And I didn't always love it. I came here to Blacksburg, Virginia about five years ago and thought that this would be the personal Shangri-La that I had been looking for. And pretty quickly I realized I didn't like it that much. Um, You know, when are we going to move on? Uh, When are we going to find the actual best town for me? But with two relatively small children and all these moves under my belt, I realized it was up to me to make my place into my home, that I couldn't wait for myself to magically land in a town that would make everything perfect. I had to make it perfect for me. And... The way I did that was simply by changing my behaviors and my thought processes in the town to create a sense of community for myself and learned in the process that that is possible. So that's my guest, Melanie Warnick. Her book is This is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are. I want to note that you laid out a few very practical kinds of things to do to make a home wherever you are. And I want you to pick up on a few of them and explain them because what we see in Margot and Kelly's book is that a lot of that was expressed in the stories there because I think you figured out that there's some universality in in making all this stuff work. So what would be of your 10 lessons to be happier in the place you land? Just a couple of the top ones. 
everything that I came up with, and I call these love where you live experiments, were based in research that I discovered about this concept of place attachment, this idea that we can develop an emotional bond with your place. So some of the 10 things that I focused on were things that research said made people happier in their communities, made people like it more, like walking and biking. There's a lot of research right now that says we are happier when we are in walkable neighborhoods and walkable communities. So I kind of deduced that when we walk and bike where we live, we tend to like it more. And then there was a lot of research that said neighborly connections really make people feel at home where they live. That's something that has completely gone by the wayside in you know the past 40 or 50 years from a time when you really did socialize with your neighbors to now where 30% of Americans don't know the first name of any of their neighbors. But I made an effort to get to know my neighbors, to take banana muffins to them or to invite them over for dinner. Small actions that made me feel like I knew people and I was more socially connected, which is really important to our sense of place. And then finally, there was research that showed that certain behaviors community members could take were good not only for them, but for their towns, like shopping locally, buying things from local independent stores instead of online or from big box stores helps communities and towns thrive economically. So it's one of those things that's relatively simple to do, but just requires a little shift in your thought process. But it can make a big difference, not only for where you live, but for you personally in making you feel invested in your town. That's Melanie Warnick. I want to emphasize that there is a lot of really interesting research that you reference in this book, which I think will help people. So you're not just sort of making this stuff up off the top of your head. Not only did you research (laughs) it, I just want people to say that because people are going to listen and say, well, that seems so simple. How does she know that? Well, she knows because she talked to quite a number of scientists, which I encourage you to read in the book. Let me move on uh, back to Margot and Kelly, because what I saw in Melody's book and Margot Kahn and Kelly McMaster's are editors of This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. What I saw in a number of the essays were many of the things that Melody sort of excavated about how people make home and keep home and think about home. And I wondered what you took away that was common in many of the stories. This is Kelly. I would say one of the first things that we realized, there are 30 essays here and almost across the board, there is some mention of a mother or some kind of generational maternal lineage in almost every piece, whether someone is writing as a mother or writing about their own mother or writing about their grandmother. There are a lot of grandmothers in here, too. And the thing that was not so common would be that home is not necessarily where you live. I think the commonality there is that home is a nostalgic place, is a place that for most people does not quite exist either anymore or yet. And so we have this idea of home and we're either trying to move away from it or move toward it. But very few people in our experience in our essays that we read for the collection actually felt that they were home. So there's a dislocation. And I would say the other commonality is, like it or not, the political implications of the idea of home, whether that means where you're from, where you want to be going, or the choices that you make, whether to stay home or to return to a place or where you make your home, all of those things, especially in 2017, have become very politicized. And so there's 
a politicized home front that has been activated. And all of these 30 essays, I think, weave through all of those ideas. So, Margot, I wonder, because Kelly pointed out something that I noticed about the mother theme in a lot, or the grandmother theme in a lot of the essays. Is that because of the sort of thought that the mothers are the heart of the home, if you will, that they make the home? Do you think that's why that came up so much in many of the essays? I think that is why. Traditionally, women have been the homekeeper, not necessarily the homemaker. And Kelly and I thought long and hard about whether or not to only include women in this collection. And in the end, we decided that these were voices that really needed to be heard. And this tradition, as it were, there is change-making happening now. And we see more men staying home. We see more conversation about that or hear more conversation about that. But it still does remain an assumption to some degree that the woman holds the home place. So we wanted to hear from women about how that's going in this day and age and what people are looking forward to this transition being. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Last year on the show, I spoke with Melanie Warnick, author of This is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are, and Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters, the editors of an essay collection entitled This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. We discussed the meaning of home at a time when most Americans live far from the place they grew up. Margot and Kelly, I'm going to ask you both to read an excerpt from your essays, which are also included in the book that you edited. Tell me which one of you is going first, and we'll go from there. I'll go first. This is Margot. Okay, Margot, your piece is entitled In the Kitchen. In the house I grew up in, the kitchen was renovated in the 1980s with a modernist white, gray, black palette. Gray floor, white cabinets, white counter, white fridge, white stove. In this kitchen, my mother cooked regularly, but never with pleasure. There was no joy for my mother in this kind of ephemeral creation, a thing you labored over only to find it consumed quickly and often without appreciation. Her flank steak was always the same, marinated in soy sauce. Her chicken breasts usually came to the table raw inside, returning to the oven only to end up overcooked, tough and dry. Dinner was a necessity, and it was her job to put it on the table, my mother told me time and again, because my stepfather worked and made the money to keep us housed and clothed and fed. She held to this belief even after she got her own job and made good money herself. My mother worked as a consultant part-time, while the house and the children were still her primary responsibility. Her outside-the-house work gave her an identity other than homemaker, an outlet I think she needed as a way to be sure she would not become her mother. But her consulting career, so long as she had children in the house, was always secondary. Meanwhile, in my friend's basement, our favorite game to play was restaurant. From a bin in the play kitchen, we took plastic drumsticks and sunny-side-up eggs, piled them on plates, ferried the plates and cups back and forth to the invisible customers, back and forth, back and forth. 
We dreamed of one day being waitresses. We dreamed that we owned the restaurant. But I never imagined being the primary breadwinner for a family. Professions for women, so far as I understood, were best when they were flexible and ended early enough in the day to pick children up from school, to have summers off. Whereas a friend whose single mother was a doctor received the implied message that she could grow up to be a working mother and the primary breadwinner for her family, and she has, men around me said things like, do something you want to do, someone will take care of you. This was a strange middle step of an idea, the approval of a woman's freedom while keeping her imprisoned, tethered, powerless. That's my guest, Margot Kahn. Her piece is In the Kitchen. It's an essay in the book that she edited called This is the Place Women Writing About Home. Kelly McMasters, would you read an excerpt from your essay in the book? Absolutely. This is from The Leaving Season. A vacation house is like an affair, I suppose. A weekend or summer house offers excitement, possibility, and contrast. Instead of being with a different person, you are with a different house. When you choose to be with a person other than your partner, and usually for small bits of time compared to the time spent with your main partner, part of the allure is the freedom to be a different person yourself. The same happens when you are with a different house. Sometimes that fantasy feels so real and so much better than what you've already got going on, you leave your partner for the affair. But ultimately, you still have to figure out how to pay bills and who is going to make sure the propane tank is full and who is going to change the toilet paper rolls. Suddenly, the person you imagined you could be is eclipsed by all the same small worries that took up your time before the switch. Marriage is also a kind of fantasy. In my mind, in our farmhouse, we would write and paint and raise our children with intention and integrity, surrounded by the beauty of the natural world. I'm embarrassed to admit this now, and it sounds so childish, but it's true. I imagined our new home would have a dollhouse quality, with our worlds taken up by moving from one room to another and another, a tiny galaxy of four planets held within our creaking walls. But the longer we lived full-time in the farmhouse, the farther away from one another Em and I drifted. That's my guest, Kelly McMasters. Her piece was The Leaving Season. It's an essay in the book that she and Margot edited. This is the place women writing about home. You know, I wanted to hear your voices from the essay collection, but I thought they illustrated a lot of what we've been talking about here now, the whole mother figure at the center and the shaping of that, but also something that, Melody, you spend some time talking about, which is making the place uh, your own is not always cheery. I mean, things happen. <laughs> you got to figure out how to exist there. And as Kelly says, you know, buy the toilet paper, do all of that. And in our minds, we always think home, happy place, happy place, but not necessarily so. So I was fascinated, Melody, about your looking into people who decide to stay in a place. They like it and they decide to stay when they have other options. I wonder if you would read a, a piece from your book. This is where you belong, finding home wherever you are. And this is about one of the women in Blacksburg named Gertie. More than six in 10 adults move to a new community at least once in their lives. But the truth is that often they don't go very far. A Pew Research Center study found that 57% of Americans have never lived outside their home state. More remarkable, 37% have never left their hometown. For a country that prides itself on its happily mobile populace, that more than a third of American adults still live where they grew up seems shocking. 
To the modern imagination, people who never leave their hometown are viewed with suspicion, seen as unadventurous at best, pathetic at worst. A telling 2013 headline from The Onion reads, Unambitious loser with happy, fulfilling life still lives in hometown. Sure, we think you can have a nice life in your hometown, but why would you want to? In his book, Who's Your City?, the demographer Richard Florida divides people into three categories— the mobile, the stuck, and the rooted. We tend to focus on the first two, the mobile who can pick up and move to opportunity and the stuck who lack the resources to leave where they are, Florida says. But we cannot forget about the rooted, those who have the means and opportunity to move but choose to stay. Why do they choose to stay? Because they're content where they are. From the outside, it can be tough to tell the difference. If I hadn't spent time with her, I would have assumed that Gertie Moore was stuck in that West Virginia coal mining hollow. Except she wants to live there. She's never considered moving. For all its faults, Gertie chose Laredo, and that makes her rooted. I think the whole rooted concept is very interesting. Here's something that, that both of you talk about a lot is abject homesickness. So people have moved in the essays to places, and they are so homesick for their concept of home or space where they were. I'd love you to both, all three of you, to speak to how abject homesickness was dealt with in both of your books. Let's start with you, Margot. Well, I think the essay that most comes to mind when you talk about homesickness from our collection is an essay by Kirsten Sundberg-Lundstrom, And she writes about how when she was living in New York with her husband and two small children, she had a very strong homesick feeling for her native Pacific Northwest. And she and her husband both had terrific jobs, not easy jobs to find. The children were happy. But she was away from her family. Her husband also had roots in the Pacific Northwest, but it was she in particular who really was homesick. And one day she decided it was just enough. She was too far from her family and from the landscape also that she loved so much. And so they return to the Pacific Northwest. They leave their jobs. They have no jobs lined up when they depart New York, nor do they have a place to live, nor do they have the finances to get their own place to live without work. And so they wind up moving in with her parents. And, you know, as Melody talked about the sort of stigma of, you know, living in the place you grew up, there was this double stigma almost for Kirsten moving back in with her parents in her 30s with children in tow. And she talks about how she was, you know, almost embarrassed to tell anyone where she lived when she would meet people, other mothers on the playground. She moves back, and I think what we find in this essay is this really deep joy and contentment and surprise in seeing her parents, understanding her parents in a new light as an adult, seeing her children and their grandparents bond on a totally new level by being together day-to-day in the same house. And this idea of intergenerational living isn't one that comes up that often in our daily dialogue, but she really finds a very deep beauty in it. Yeah, that was a really impressive one. I um, I mean, all of them are impressive for different reasons, but that one really got to me because the power of that homesickness I really felt down in my gut. 
And Melanie, I, I felt it from you, too, because you were longing for someplace, any place, just get me out of Blacksburg. <laughs> and I, I want to emphasize that the, the great thing about your book is that you tried all these things that people told you to try to make a space there, but you were suffering a long time for other places. <laughs> Right, and I'm, I'm sure people in Blacksburg, <laughs> to hear that, are Not just now. so offended. <laughs> right. Not now, but originally. Uh, the, the spoiler alert is that it did change for me. But, you know, when you're in that moment of, I've just moved to a new place, I don't know where I put the silverware, and I can't find the black beans in the grocery store, you just feel so lost. I remember someone that I interviewed for the book described it as this realization that if I died, no one in a 100-mile radius would care. You know, you just feel so alone. And that can be really tough to take. And when you're moving around a lot, when you're mobile, like I was for many years, you always have this sense of forward-looking possibility. And it's getting there that can be tough, uh, landing in a place and realizing it's not what you thought. And you're lonely for a long time. So a lot of creating a home in whatever place you happen to be in is meeting people, making friends, creating those connections, and sort of digging yourself a little spot right where you are. And it doesn't happen right away. There's research that says that feeling of place attachment, that feeling of belonging and happiness in your place, takes about five years to really come to full strength. I'm there right now. We've been in Blacksburg for five years and we are so rooted. We're currently building a house in town. You know, that's how much we want to stay where we are. But it took a while. And those original couple years were filled with a little bit of longing for elsewhere. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. This Thanksgiving weekend, we're re-airing our conversation with Melody Warnick, author of This Is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are, and Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters, the editors of an essay collection entitled This Is The Place, Women Writing About Home. So, Margot and Kelly, I can't remember which one of you said at the beginning of this conversation that some political issues just naturally arose as the women were writing the essays. So a question I want to ask to all of you is, since it's so critical to our sense of self, if you all would respond to what happens when you think about homelessness and the toll that that takes physically and psychically, emotionally, because I started thinking about Melody as you were trying to find your space and make it there and the essays in your books, uh, Margot and Kelly, and I thought, because all these people, all of you have a very strong sense of what home is, you come away with a distinct feeling about that loss, even if you are not homeless. Yeah, this is Melody. Um, that feeling of being homeless is not just placelessness, it's a lack of belonging and a lack of feeling you have a voice in your own society. That's one of the things that I realized from the research really matters is feeling like you can affect change where you live, um, whether that's 
getting involved, running for political office, volunteering, that you can make something happen in your town. And when you are homeless, whether that's literally homeless on the streets or simply feeling displaced in your community, Hmm. you feel like you are voiceless and unseen. Unseen, that's what it is, yeah. yeah, Right, feeling seen Mm -hmm. in your community gives you a sense of belonging and a sense of value. And that's kind of what we're all searching for in our place is we want to live in a place that makes us feel seen and heard. Margo or Kelly? This is Kelly. (laughs) Yeah, we thought a lot about homelessness because there are so many different versions of homelessness, right? There's the literal not having a home and then having been forced to leave your home. Um, A lot of our essays here talk about being forced out of your homeland. One of our writers, Maya Jewell Zeller, wrote a gorgeous piece called The Privilege Button, and she talks about how she never thought of herself as homeless because her parents didn't really let her imagine herself that way, even though they absolutely were. And she reflects upon what that means when she buys her own home. The privilege button in the title is actually the button that she hits in her car to open the garage door. And the, how far she's come, that, that object becomes sort of the metaphor for this luxury of having too much of a home. Rebecca Solnit has a gorgeous quote that says, places are more constant than people ever can be. Mm. They don't have a place to call home or to identify with or community. And I think Melody's book, it sounds like, has really um, focused on the idea of community and that even more so than a family and a physical house. I think communities are really at the heart of home as well. And when you don't have any of those things, I think that can be more painful because we build our homes as a reflection of ourselves. If we don't have a home, we also can't see ourselves. So it's Mm. not just other people not seeing us, but we lose our own identity, and that's also troublesome. Oh, I think you really tapped into something there. I'm wondering, Margot, if at the holiday time, you know, we have these ideas and images in our head of what home must be, and it really gets challenged during the time where there are forced images, really, forced scenarios that everybody's supposed to sign off on, whether or not that's ever been your reality at any point in your life. I was thinking about that during this particular time and wondering as someone who's just edited a whole book of essays about what home is all about, you know, how you see that. It's an interesting sort of conundrum, right? I think you're exactly right that we have a lot of images or assumptions or expectations, probably based on a lot of media that we see and hear. Holidays are sort of a time to gather together and images of meals around the table and songs around the fireplace or whatever warm and gathering images you have. When those don't line up with your exact family situation, it can be displacing, sometimes upsetting. And I think it's more the norm than the exception that families are complicated. So Going home just does seem to be often, I don't want to use the word fraught because Mm. it makes it sound a little too depressing, but (laughs) complicated, complex. Complex, yes. Yeah. You know, we didn't bring this book out at this time without thinking about that. I think that this is a time of year that people do think about their home place. And 
one essay I love from the collection that deals specifically with that is Jennifer Finney Boylan's piece, Freeing Thanksgiving from My Family. Oh, that's very great. Much yeah. About, yeah, it's very much about her yeah. her decision-making process of whether or not as a, as a young person to hang out in New York City with her friend and go to the parade and just be free of this expectation that she show up at her mother's table. And in the end, she does wind up going home, but it's sort of on her own terms. Melody, how would you answer that question? I love that concept of doing things on your own terms. I think the holidays revolve a lot around the house and the hearth, and I like to sort of extend it out into the larger definition of home, you know, your town, your city, your community. And there are a lot of opportunities at the holiday time to not only feel, you know, more connected to it, but feel like you're doing something for where you live. I mentioned earlier shopping locally, patronizing independent stores in your community. And that was something that was not on my radar at all before I started researching this book. You know, I was the ultimate Amazon shopper. And I have learned since how much that can impact your local economy and also those individual shop owners when you patronize their businesses. And an easy way to do that is just say, you know, I am going to buy one or two Christmas presents at local stores. There's a toy store down the street from me that I write about in the book called Imaginations. And I used to go there and kind of wander around and think, oh my gosh, I can't afford anything here. You know, this is not the target clearance aisle. And then I finally just decided, I don't want this store to close. We have to invest in what we want to see in our town. And so for me, that was deciding that I will buy Christmas presents at Imaginations. And it's a little bit more money than maybe I would have spent otherwise, but it's a way for me to create the kind of town I want to live in. So I think that's maybe one of the ways you can make the holidays a little less fraught. Take it out into things you can control and do good in your community. Well, that's a great place to end. I highly recommend both of these books. Thank you for gathering all of those beautiful essays together to give us something to ponder as we navigate this holiday season and enjoy and think about what home means to all of us. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Callie. Thank you, Callie. Thanks. Melanie Warnick is an established freelance journalist and the author of This is Where You Belong, Finding Home Wherever You Are. And Margot Kahn and Kelly McMasters are the editors of a collection of essays entitled This is the Place, Women Writing About Home. They joined me last year to talk about the meaning of home and how our earliest memories shape who we become. Coming up, could being a part of a drum circle really help us better understand ourselves and others? Local musician Jonathan Monday certainly thinks so. Jonathan joined us last year to talk about his educational and therapeutic program, Drums and Wellness. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap, 
That's Creole for something extra. Jonathan Monde knows firsthand the power of music on our minds and our feelings. Between growing up in a war-torn Congo and immigrating to the United States with no knowledge of the English language, drumming was one of the few grounding constants in his life. Jonathan is now an education and mental health advocate based in Brookline, Massachusetts. He joined us last year to talk about an educational program he founded called Drums and Wellness, which uses drumming as a form of therapy and a method to teach life skills like listening and collaborating. Jonathan, welcome to Under the Radar. All right. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. Let's just jump right in. Your program is called Drums and Wellness. Describe what it is. That's right. Well, you know, Drums and Wellness is a personal and community development education startup. Uh, and so it's a drum-based education. It's really about using drums to not only bring people together, but from an individual perspective, working with individuals in developing critical life skills while learning how to play an instrument. So we know now that arts therapy is very much proven over and over again. So sometimes people draw, sometimes people use other kinds of musical instruments. I'm just curious about how drumming for you, you think, really helps people make a connection and perhaps maybe other instruments don't as far as you're concerned or or more specifically why drumming is very much linked to people's healing and just healing I guess yeah no that's a good question mm-hmm. it's not as daunting I've seen people just kind of gravitate towards the drum anybody if they see the drum they just they want to play it it's one of those instruments that it doesn't require a lot of technique and so because of that, it's easier to facilitate playing. So, so the difference between learning how to play the drums, or at least in this case, hand drums, as opposed to the guitar, there's a lot of technique involved in strumming, in finding the melody on a guitar. Though, even while you're learning how to play guitar, having a rhythmic sense or a sense of rhythm is critical in that as well. And so rhythm is the basis of everything. And so if anybody learns rhythm or they understand their sense of rhythm, then how they connect with themselves and others in the world is really representing their true authentic self. Sort of life beat, heartbeat, if you will. Right, (laughs) right. And, And that's the idea here is finding and aligning your internal sense of rhythm. In doing so, it then it helps us understand the rhythm of the world around. Now, you mentioned that people find the drum accessible. You know, you hear it and you gravitate to it because you think you can do this and you have a connection. In fact, that was what got you into it originally. So you were five, right. uh, living in the Congo in Africa. And mm-hmm. tell us the story about how you first began to drum. It just kind of came to me. I heard a song by a famous Congolese musician, Kofi Olomide, uh, and there's an introduction to a song that just kind of stuck to me, and I wanted to play it, and I made my own drum set just based on what I had seen on TV and what I thought I could do, so I actually went and found two bamboo sticks, and I had a cinder block, and with that cinder block on top of it was a piece of cardboard. And on top of that was uh, sort of broom hairs. And the broom hairs are made from the stem from palm leaves. And so that was used as the drum set. And I just used my foot as the bass drum. And that's kind of how I started. 
And so from that point forward, I was really interested in learning more about drums. And I started just staying a little later at church services and, and jumping on the drums and just banging on it. And then they started letting me play during service every once in a while. <laughs> and that, that was kind of the genesis. So I'm curious to know, when you put your own drum set together, what did it sound like? Was it anything close to what you had imagined? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. As I imagined it in my mind, uh, it definitely sounded right. But looking back, it, it nah, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, your journey from five years old, making your own drum set to playing in church in the Congo and coming to America is quite a, a lengthy one. You came here because of uh, overwhelming circumstances, really, the the coup and the war going on there and separated from your mom for a time, ended up here. And just pick up the story there you because you were 11 when you came and still there was a lot going on that for all intents and purposes, you may never have drummed or done anything else again, given what you were experiencing. Right, mm -hmm. right. Well, it was a series of unfortunate situations. I think that's the best way I could put it. So if we can go back to 1994, the Rwandan genocide spilled into Congo big time. And as you had mentioned, the coup was also happening. A lot of things were happening at that time. At that point, I was just in it. We had lost contact with my mom because she had been traveling. She was going to the Ivory Coast, but we didn't know where she was. When she got to Ivory Coast, she ended up sending us a postcard telling us that she was safe, that she was there. And that was just a period in my development where seeing a lot of horrible things happening, the way people were treated with war. It's war. It's really horrible. It, it's war. It's mm -hmm. horrible. I mm -hmm. mean, there are millions of people mm -hmm. dying, no electricity for long, long, long periods of time, you know, and we would have to travel miles for clean water. I, the reason I'm having you recount that is just so people have a good sense of of where you came from and right. how this has informed you as you started thinking about using the drum for healing later on. So when you arrived in America at 11 and, you know, you're homeless and you're trying to connect with family members and all that, that's still was, it wasn't over. The war in some sense wasn't over for you once you arrived. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just a new kind of war. Mm -hmm. And it was now about fitting in and finding my identity. Yeah, I mean, with no English words in my mouth, you know, I had to really find my place. And we were lucky enough to be granted Section 8 housing. There actually used to be a homeless shelter in Brookline. And so we lived there for a period of time. And so I was able to go to the Edward Devotion School. And that's really where I started to find myself. And I was able to connect with some teachers that were really impactful in my development. You know, and these are people that just really got where I was coming from and what I needed. And it was there that you got into the after-school program for drumming. Right. Uh, with a gentleman named Jorge. Jorge, So right. just talk to me about what that meant to you at that point. I mean, we've just heard these horrific stories of what you had gone through. Here you are, as you say, trying to find your space. And now here's the drama again mm -hmm. reappearing in your life with uh, someone who can really teach you. I, I finally had an outlet. I, I finally had a space where I can express myself and just be. So given that I started playing much earlier, now I was learning how to play jazz. I was learning, and Jorge, given that he's from Peru, we were playing a lot of um, Afro-Peruvian beats. 
And so we were really just able to connect on that level where he taught me a lot. But as he says, I taught him a lot as well. And so he he just he became a mentor and someone that I was able to connect with from a, a music standpoint, but also just somebody to look up to. When you moved to high school, you were still bearing the scars of the old experiences and trying, still trying to, well, high school, first of all, is, you know, high school. So that's a, that's a rough situation. Right. And then you had all this other stuff to deal with emotionally and things didn't go so well there. So you ended up repeating a year. It wasn't, right. weren't a good student. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm saying all this so that yeah, people absolutely. understand the journey of where you are now. Right. Double major at Leslie University, <laughs> yeah. you know, developing your own program. It's right. quite the journey. And the through line has always been when you return to drumming, right. you somehow found, got stabilized. It was a tough journey. But at the same time, I had to go through all of that to be where I am today. A lot of academic trauma in high school came up. And and in some senses, I was able to assimilate pretty fast, even though there were some challenges in learning the language and so on, just because I was able to see how people moved and acted and interacted. And so I took in that information. And so to a lot of people looking at me, it was as if he's good, he's all set, mm-hmm. he doesn't need anything, but they didn't see that there was a lot more that mm-hmm. I needed. I needed a lot more support. And so that's what made it really challenging. Uh, and so that one person in high school that I had was Paul Epstein, mm-hmm. who was my social worker. And it was really great having that support, somebody that, that really gets you and sees beyond your troubles and circumstances. Callie Crossley, and you're listening to a special encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Last year, education and mental health advocate Jonathan Monday joined me to discuss his educational program, Drums and Wellness, which provides therapy and teaches life skills to children through drumming. So now I want to connect because just to tag off of high school, um, you ended up having to repeat a year. And nobody thought that you were going to be the guy that was going to come back and (laughs) do all this great Mm -hmm. academic stuff. But yet you did. That somehow got you rebalanced. You even spent for uh, an incident in in high school, spent 35 days in jail, came out of that, regrouped. And tell me now how playing those drums through this time started helping you figure out your path to wellness, which then, of course, led you to realize that it could be an instrument for other people as well. So 35 days in jail was definitely impactful, but I didn't want to let that circumstance dictate who I am and what I was out to do because I always knew that I was capable of a lot of things. So with all of that, I kept playing drums. When I came out of that, one of the first things I did was I went to the library and started reading, but then I went and started playing drums in my room, sitting there just playing, trying to understand, well, first of all, I have to go back to the high school as what they call super senior. And so I have to kind of face the music. Literally. Literally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and and so how am I going to do that, you know, with all of these things going on? And not too long before the incident, I was diagnosed with executive functioning and PTSD. And so for me, I had to do a lot of internal work. And so at that time, I didn't even know that 
I am doing anything for healing. I was just doing what I love, which was drumming always. And then 2011, I was at the high school and I did a dual degree program between Brookline High School and Bunker Hill Community College. Let's just stop there because you were a kid that had to get kicked out, spent 35 days in jail, had to repeat, and now you're doing a dual program. I mean, yeah. you have really turned your life around. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but I was also, so Paul Epstein actually approached me and told me about a, a running program for at-risk high school students. Uh, it's called Dream Far High School Marathon for high school students to train for and run the marathon. So I, I was working part-time actually and I was doing the dual program and I was training for the marathon. So it's that, a whole new you. It was, a, it was a completely whole new me. But that was a whole new me out here. There were still things internally that I was dealing with. You know, a lot of self-esteem stuff. You know, I, I thought, you know, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. Even though I'm doing all these things. You know, I was motivated by finding success and, you know, creating success in my life, yet I was still dealing with a lot of past traumas. And so, I mean, I went on that year to not only did I complete the high school and get my diploma, I also completed the marathon. And so that was a metaphor to life to me that it's a race in some ways, but you've got to take it slow, one step at a time. It can be completed despite the challenges that come along the way. So now, Jonathan Monday, you're a double major, psychology and... And, and I'm specializing in expressive arts therapy. And you're, expe you're specializing, as you said, in this uh, arts therapy. And you're able to now talk to certainly young people. I mean, I know you do deal with all ages. And to say to them, I was a big old mess. Mm -hmm. And I, this is the way in which I reached back and found myself and led to something more positive. And I want to know what you say. I mean, what, what made you put all this together and say there are some skills that I'm learning from drumming that can be used in a therapeutic way and I can definitely reach young people, certainly, who were like me, trying to figure it all out? Well, Jorge has been teaching at the devotion school for 20 years. And the program there during school, it's a drum program working with students with learning differences or students that are, are in IEP or have been identified by their teachers. And so seeing that and talking with him, you know, he had me come in and work with him a couple of times. I saw that this is really impactful. How can we take it to the next level? And then he offered me to teach after school. And I started out with about six students, and then it, it grew over time. And but it, what made you think that this was going to work, that, that what worked for you therapeutically right. would work for these kids? Well, because I was able to express myself in ways that I, I wasn't able to do with anything else. And so the thing about drumming, to me, is being in a space that allows me to create. And so there's sequential formatting in creating a beat and creating a rhythm. What I've found is as you're creating that beat in a sequential format, you're engaging your left hemisphere of your brain. So I started reading a lot about the multiple intelligences theory and so how you can engage your whole brain with logical and analytical thinking and uh, musical intelligence and kinesthetic intelligence and these other intelligences so that, okay, well, we don't just have to think about intelligence as one aspect of your brain in logical thinking, which is kind of in many ways what 
the education system is based out of, and that's how they're able to measure intelligence and IQ. And so I was like, okay, well, drumming, if you're doing sequential formatting, in essence, you're doing mathematical thinking, but then because it's an instrument, it's, it's musical, and you're having to engage your right hemisphere, in, in essence, what you're doing is you're engaging your whole brain. I just think it's interesting that you said that this learning an instrument, you're developing these four important skills, listening, communication, collaboration, and self-expression. Mm -hmm. And that comes all together in the drumming. Yeah, right. Mm. In listening, we talk a lot about active listening. Mm. And active listening so that how you're listening to someone else is being present in listening for what matters, what is important, or what's missing, the presence of which will make a difference. So how do we interpret that in rhythm? It's very much improvisational because if you're not actively listening to what is happening, you're going to miss what's actually happening right now as we're playing together. So therefore, you might not be able to be effective in creating your rhythm. That's connected with communication because we're having a conversation as we are playing music together. And so that conversation has us work together through listening communication, we're able to work well together in collaboration. And therefore, what we express in that self-expression is honest expression. And it's not what you think other people might be thinking or what you feel other people might be perceiving of you, but it's of your honest self. And so if we were to look at that in a group, for instance, if we were working with a group of professionals and we want creating a cohesive environment, if all these properties or pillars are put in place, over time that will create an effective work environment because then how people listen, communicate, and collaborate with each other is representative of who they are and the work they're out to do. This is my guest, Jonathan Monday. We're discussing his educational program called Drums and Wellness. In terms of active listening, why don't we take a listen to you playing? We have a tape of it. And just so people get a sense of what it sounds like when you're really in your rhythm. Awesome. So what I want to know is that's very that sounds very sophisticated to me. So if I'm a kid or even an adult just beginning with you, um, how do you begin to teach somebody to approach the drum? I mean, I'd like to know what you show them and what they repeat back to you. Awesome. Yeah. I could get that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I could even get that. Yeah. It's possible. <laughs> it's, it is possible. I'm thinking I could do that. All right. So they start drumming with you. They're watching you. They're active listening. All of these skills that we talked about are engaged. What's it like for you watching them really come into being themselves? Wow. Uh, <laughs> it's really empowering for me. It's empowering, but then I, I try to remember that I don't do this for me. I do it for them. 
the thing about this work is it's never over. It's never done. For instance, in my own journey, like I'm not done working on myself. And so to be in a space where I feel like, okay, well, you know, you've learned these skills and, and now you're working towards mastering them. And, and so, so that's great. But then what's next after that? And so my whole thing is, because this is improvisational based, I'm not necessarily teaching kids how to be the next best drummer. And if they go on to being the next best drummer, then that's awesome. I want to give them the basic skills as a drummer with these other socio-emotional based skills through drums that is from a holistic standpoint hopefully going to give them the skills they need to be effective individuals in the world. So your program's called Drums and Wellness. Is this a new definition of wellness? I would say it's definitely something new to bring to the table, a different way of looking at wellness. And so using drums as a way of development and so there's still more research to be done in looking at how it affects cognitive development, you know, and, and that's really what I'm excited about continuously working on. I'm excited to continue to discover new things and, and to partner with anybody that would like to work with me in this development. Well, good luck to you. You're graduating from Leslie and taking this on out into your future work and career and expanding this. So good luck. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Jonathan Monday is the founder of Drums and Wellness, an educational program that uses drumming as a form of therapy and a way to teach life skills. He joined us last year to talk about his educational method. That's it for this encore edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.